moved to, to Newcastle, massive club, big salmon there, as you say. You didn't sign for Mike Ashley, but he comes in. Did you notice a change right away when Ashley came in? Yeah, it was a strange one, really, because I, I, I'd met, I met Davey Moyes that summer and, and, and obviously really, really liked him. Um, but at the time, um, Everton, I think Everton's... I was on, I think I was on about, I think I've written, I've written this in my book, so it's there. I think, I think I was on 28 grand a week at City, 26, 28 grand a week at City. I'm obviously up in the summer. Um, the transfer fee was locked in. I, I think I was probably, I must have been worth at least about eight, nine, ten, ten mil at the time, maybe a bit more, I don't know. But I had a clause in from when I negotiated my contract from six grand a week to 26 let's say it was 26 28 and they wouldn't give me any more city so i said well oh, you know the agent and the advisor used at the time said okay well fair enough if you're not going to pay him more than that then you can't ask for more than five and a half million as a transfer fee because you value him at that point and he was like yeah fair, it's club like fair enough they got me from the academy for free so five and a half million for them was a good screw i'd obviously kicked on in those in those 12 18 months to where five and a half million for me was really cheap. I mean, I was a full international. So, you know, that that uh, full international at 24, I think I was at the time, is was really, really cheap. So, obviously, a number of clubs were, were looking at that as, you know, that there's good value in the market for that. So, that transfer clause being in my contract made me probably more um, appealing to a number of clubs. Sat down with Everton, which was the side I'd supported as a boy, um, Loved Davy Moyes, thought he was brilliant. But at that point, Everton were kind of having a good season and then having a bad season and a good season and a bad season. And there was constant noises about they needed more investment and, and so on and so forth. And Newcastle were a huge club. You know, they were they had Michael Owen up front, Mark Viduka was about to sign, Obafemi Martins, Emre Bazogalu, Shea Given, Damian Duff, Nicky Butt. I could just keep going, you know, Stephen Carr loads of top players and Newcastle were actually trying to get from top six to to top four so Champions League they'd had a taste of it with the Shearer Bellamy and all that either Kieran Dyer but they still had all those components if not better to, to crack on and Everton were I think they'd finished had a, they'd finished similar to us at City that year and you know didn't see like they were going to have a huge investment. So it was going to be a similar season, I presumed. Maybe a bit better, but but similar. And and Everton then were maxed out. I think Everton's offer, the, the highest paid player at Everton at that point, I think was on 40 grand a week. And they were like, look, we can only go to 40. And, and I had Eggett Magnusson and West Ham saying, look, whatever you get offered, we'll give you more. And I had Newcastle offering me, you know, 50, 60, it's 70. It ended up close to 80 uh, a week. So it was double the amount of money that I was going to get at Everton. Via West Ham, we were offering more than Newcastle. They offered 85, 90 in the end, and I signed for Newcastle on 78 because I wanted to go to Newcastle. I wanted to play for Newcastle. No disrespect to West Ham. I just, I just wanted to... I'd, I'd always had Newcastle kits growing up from the Andy Cole, Kevin Keegan entertainers era, and I had the Asics kit, and I had the blue kit with the star on for Christmas because they were a great side. You know, Peter Beardsley... Uh, Les Ferdinand and all that later on Ginola and, and they always had really good kits in Newcastle and I always loved just the fans whenever they came to Goodison I used to sit in the park end and you'd always had the away fans next to you so I used to always take in who were the best fans who sang through the game who were fanatic and I always remember 
you know, the Newcastle fans being, wow, they must be some crowd to play for, some some support base. And, and, and lo and behold, when I got there, you realise, you know, just how good they are. And um, so at that point, I, I realised I've done really, really well financially. Yeah. You know, whichever decision I made, I'm, I'm going to be, you know, I've gone from never, I'm never going to have to work again in my life. And my, my children won't if, if, if they choose uh, that pathway. So I can give my kids a, a start in life and an education and nice things that, that, that we didn't have as, as kids. So at that point, you know, I'm 24, I've played for England and I'm about to sign a contract for five years um, on the better part of, you know, four, three and a half, four million pound a season. So at that point, you know, I, I know I've just secured, you know, my family's financial future through kicking a, a ball of football, a, a ball of air around. It's bizarre, but, but it was it was a decision that um, didn't go to plan because, you know, Freddie Shepherd sold the club not long afterwards. And I, I, I think I do, one of the, one of the regrets I do have is that, I never played for Everton. I think now, looking back at it now, I'm gutted I never played for Everton. I think that's that's the one <clears throat> regret I've got in my career because I think I think I'm an Evertonian and I know I, I think it worked. Um, I just think the way I played and and and, and the way they are and, and and the way the club was at that time. I think I think I'd, I'd, I could have had a great spell there. And and I think if I do rough back with any regret over my career, it's it's that I never played for Everton. Um, but but I, I I went to Newcastle and had um, a great spell. Um, I, I loved it. I still love going back to Newcastle. It's still one of my favourite cities to visit. Fans are fantastic, and we had some dark days, but also um, we had some some incredible moments as well. And obviously went there three weeks after I get there. Mike Ashley replaces uh, Freddie Shepherd, and then. I break my foot in the pre-season against Carlisle and it just went wrong. First year just went wrong. By the time um, the Christmas period comes, I'd come back from the injury. I got myself in an altercation in Liverpool City Centre, which meant I spent six days in, in Walton Prison. Um, <clears throat> I, then, I then came out of that. By the time I got out, Sam Allardyce had been sacked because we'd lost in the FA Cup to Stoke. Uh, I'd fell out with Keegan at Man City at the back end before I left, before he left. He now became the new Newcastle manager. So I was like, fucking hell, if you could have picked the worst manager for me to have coming out of uh, being in a, a load of controversy myself, just getting out of jail, it was Kevin Keegan who had, who had not got on with great at City. And to be fair to him, he, he was absolutely brilliant. And, and, you know, my respect for him now is completely different because of the way he was at Newcastle, not the way... It was at, at City. He was he was everything um, I, I thought he was before I worked for him. That I'd seen with those great Newcastle sides and I'd seen as a player. And he, he you know, we just he, he was under pressure at City, and it wasn't going the way he was, and he didn't act the way he can. And I, I found that out at Newcastle, and I spent most of my time at Newcastle. Even now, you know, when I've met him subsequently, and 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 um, you know, he's, I'm good friends with Terry McDermott, and him and Terry have massive pals, and we run into each other occasionally. And most of the time, I'm like, Gaff, I'm so sorry for some of the things I did and the way I behaved. You know, I, I, I shouldn't have done that. And thankfully, I've had the opportunity to to to, to apologise for for certain things and 
and, and we've, we've managed to put those things behind us because at Newcastle I realised just what a good man and just what a good manager he was. He was, he was absolutely um, outstanding with me. I mean, the first, I walk into the corridor and bear in mind I'd been in jail. So I come back in for the first day's training and I'm thinking, I'm getting banished, I'm getting sent with the kids, I'm getting fucked off here, there's no way Keegan's having me. And he walks down the corridor and it was just like a little narrow corridor and he's gone, I bet you were delighted when you heard I'd got the job. <laughs> I've gone, fucking hell yeah, you can imagine. And he's gone, um, now nah, look, whatever happened, happened and we'll, we'll, we'll move forward. He said, I need this, this and this from you. If you give me this, this and this, we'll be fine. And he was as good to his word. We shook hands and... Um, you know, I, I played uh, and enjoyed my football under him at, at, um, at Newcastle until he'd had enough of Mike Ashley and Mike Ashley's shenanigans and decided he couldn't take it anymore. And that was a, a sad day for the club. I need to ask you about Alan Shearer, obviously, in the sense that when he took over the club, why didn't it work? Was his ego too big to, to work as a manager, considering he is really the Newcastle United icon? Yeah, I mean, look, obviously... It's a strange one. Al, Al was was a strange um, period because we'd had uh, Keegan had resigned over the transfer policy. I think Tony Jimenez and Dennis Wise trying to sign players like Cisco, and he was trying to sell a few. I think I was one of the players. There was about four or five players, Mike Lowen, and a few players that Keegan didn't want to sell that they were trying to sell as director of football without him knowing. And I think he had enough and he, he told him to stick it. And, and, and um, there was a court case and I, I think Keegan actually came out with the financial settlement. It was decided in his favour. And then Joe, Joe Kinnear came in. And do you know what? To be fair to Joe, he's sound. He's not a bad fella. He came in, he'd done the famous, I think he told everyone in the, in the press to fuck off and all the swear and all that, which went down well with the players, but not well with... With, with 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 the media, I don't know why, but yeah, it didn't particularly go down fondly with the media. Um, so yep. Joe came in and was Joe, you know, he's a good fella, good man, um, and, and kind of steadied the ship a little bit. It settled down a little bit, and we weren't getting fantastic results, but we certainly wouldn't have got relegated. And then we were going along quite nicely. I broke my foot again under Joe, at the opposite foot. Ironically, the first time I'd gone back to play at Man City, I was playing in at, at the Etihad. My first ever appearance for Newcastle back at Man City and I broke my foot in the game, just turned, no one near me, my other foot, snapped the bone in it. So I was out for a period. In in, in that period, um, Joe had, a, I think he had a stroke or, or a minor stroke and, and obviously uh, couldn't no longer continue the job and there was only about, I think, 10 games left or something. So there was a big, what are we going to do, crisis. Um, and they decided to uh, give Alan... Uh, the job or on, on a short term to try and, you know, obviously he's I, the iconic player of Newcastle, he's legend and, uh, you know, if, if he can have that influence, it, you know, the club was fighting its way down the bottom uh, in a precarious situation and they thought, you know, that the, the Shearer effect would come in and, and obviously galvanise everybody and get us safe and then obviously Al could then build for the next few years in, in, the, in the Premier League. Um, and, and Alan came in and, and look, he, no matter what we say, he was, you know, for me, he's the best goal scorer, arguably the best player that's ever played in the Premier League, Englishman. I, I think he has to be, he has to be in, in any conversation about who's the best that's ever played in the Premier League. I think he, Alan Shearer's name's got to be in the final reckoning because he was, I mean, incredible player, incredible player. And 
Al comes in and, and, and I'd gone on really, really well with Al because I was close to Steve Harper and Al and Steve Harper are really good mates. And whilst I was playing, I used to go on a Wednesday and it was our day off and we'd all play golf together. We were all part of the same golf society. And obviously Al was doing his media work, and, and but he was he was still living in Newcastle and you know still going to match and he's a big Newcastle fan. and So, so I had a really good relationship with him. Um, and I think a number of us were like that. I think even at that point, I think the lads who'd still in our group who played with them, you know, Michael Owen, Nicky Button, them boys, loads of our lads in our dressing room had still played with Al. He'd not long retired. He'd retired before I'd got there, but he'd not long retired that, you know, he, he was not rememberable to, or he didn't have any mates in the dressing room. Yeah. So he came in and he brought um, Ian Dowie in with him and a, a, a physio or a sports scientist called Paul Ferris. So they were, you know, new coaching staff tapped onto the already um, coaching staff we had there. And the, I just remember the first meeting with the players and I just remember thinking, these have got this wrong. Uh, I was injured at the time, so I was rehabbing from injury, but we, we had a big team meeting and um, he came, they came in and was like, right, we've got, I think it was seven, eight, nine games to go, whatever. Um, we're not fit enough. Uh, too many lads are going out in the city centre. Um, there's not enough discipline, blah, blah, blah. We're going to be training two sessions a day. And I just remember thinking, we've got eight games to go. Like, it's, this is not, don't need this authoritarian figure. This just needs, I, I just felt he needed to just be himself. And he, he, he's quite happy go look. He's quite a funny guy, Sheila. He's got a good sense of humour and that. I know it doesn't come across on the telly. He comes across like a right boring, um, right boring bastard on the telly. But actually, he, he's all right. He's actually, he's actually quite funny. He's got a good... Good, good mannerisms and um, I thought if he just comes in and be himself he'll be fine here and, and he didn't he came in and, and wants to be the manager straight away and wants to do all these things and put all these protocols in place which were probably good but they would have been good in the pre-season not in in the in the back end of a season you, I mean you can't you, if people aren't fit in March, April you can't get them fit you know you're going to need the, you need your pre-season you can't get them fit overnight so Al came in he was telling, I remember the meeting, he said, look, I know everybody in the city centre. I know all the security uh, CCTV operators. So no matter where you go, and Newcastle is a very incestuous city where there's one team in the city and everybody knows everyone's business. Um, so he, he made it clear to the lads, almost like a Gestapo, that you can't move. And if you do anything, I'll, I'll know about it and there'll be a ramification for it. And at that point, we were fighting relegation. I didn't think the group needed that. It didn't need the heavy-handed approach. But that's what they come in with. And then the next few weeks, um, the, the training session double. So that, you know, he's trying to get, he's trying to put running in. And, and obviously that, that can, as a coach now, it, I look back and I go, it was a fucking rookie mistake. Like he made rookie errors that we were all probably capable of doing. Um, and, you know, uh, for me, I always remember being in the treatment room one day and there was an afternoon session put on for the strikers, which was, you know, over Femi Martins, I think Mark Viduka, Sheldon Amiobi, Michael Owen, and Ian Dowie was doing the shooting session. And I always remember Michael Owen coming in going, you know, I've won the Ballon d'Or and I'm, I've got Ian Dowie telling me how to finish when I get in one-on-one. Like, what, the, like, and when you think about it like that, you think, yeah, do you know what I mean? Like, you know, Ian was a good player, solid, solid pro, but you know, not not a technician, um, more of a battering ram. Um, and I'm not sure he's the best person qualified to tell, you know, a Ballon d'Or winner, uh, a, a, a player who was an incredible player. Michael Owen was arguably when he was younger, 
the best striker in the world at a point in time, um, telling them how he should be composed and how he should finish when he gets in a one-on-one situation with the keeper. And that was just a, a predicament of, 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 of what was going on. You kind of think back to that now and go, yeah, why, why, would, why would he be telling Michael Owen how to finish? You know, why would the intel at Michael Owen how to do his job when Michael at that point, I think it was 28, 29, and, you know, a, a, a lot of experience. We played for Real Madrid, Liverpool, World Cups, you, you know, Ballon, as I say. Um, so it was a strange time. You know, Mark Viduk, and I know that a lot of the strikers felt the same. So they, they just made, Alan just, you know, we probably, we don't know whether he would have been a good or bad manager because he never spent enough time doing it. Um, but it just didn't work and uh, he came in and ultimately that season, you know, I got sent off for a tackle weirdly on Jabby Alonso at Anfield. But at that point, I was playing with a broken bone in my foot. So I knew my foot weren't right. I ended up missing a large part of the next season with it. Um, and, you know, uh, Shearer didn't get the job because the club got relegated. Um, in the interim, he didn't agree a contract. Of, I don't know what was going on with he didn't agree a deal with Mike Ashley. We were then left with a relegated side. Half the playing group didn't want to be there. Chris Hutton and Cole Calderwood were caretaker managers until like the October. Um, and then we ended up pissing the championship. So, yeah, bizarre times. Great times. Probably the best the best times at Newcastle came from the chaos that, that ensued beforehand. But um, Alan, again, uh, you know, we, we, we've patched up our differences because we had a big falling out in the dressing room at Anfield at the time. Um, I still think um, you know the the you can never forget things like that. But we we've we've got over it as much as we possibly we possibly could. And um, I think if he had his time again, I think he'd do things differently. And um, I think if he do, if he did those things differently, I think there's a good chance Newcastle wouldn't have been um, relegated. But at that point, he was he was trying to you know stop. Um, a train heading it with the wrong momentum in the wrong direction. So for a young manager taking his first job without a clue what he was doing, still working off his playing mindset and his playing energy, I can easily see now as somebody who's who's made the same mistakes, but on obviously a smaller scale at Fleetwood, um, um, I can see how if you made them in the in the back end of a season, how, how costly they would be. And, and the things he was trying to implement would have to have been implemented in pre-season when you get a chance to, to, to bed in your your way of doing things. And it was just a rookie mistake from a rookie rookie coach, rookie manager, and doesn't make him a bad person. And and, I, and again, as I say, I think if he had the power of hindsight and got another opportunity to do it, I'm, I'm pretty sure he'd make different decisions that would probably uh, lead to you know better outcomes. In terms of Newcastle, you mentioned the fact that the club gets promoted from the championship absolutely in control of that full season. You get up to the Premier League, one of the big memorable games is the game against Arsenal, the four each game, as well as the derby matches against Sunderland. What were those games like to play in? Because they're iconic when you look back on them. Well, yeah, it, it was a strange time because we won the championship at a canter. We kind of thought, OK, this is the opportunity for the club to now uh, do things properly, um, certainly at boardroom level and, and, and get ourselves into into gear. Chris was a manager, steady hand on the tiller, and we, we were good to go. We had some good young players emerge that year in the championship. Andy Carroll had come through, and we had some good young players on the edge of it. We also had uh, the foreigners who'd had a tough baptism of fire in the Premier League. 
uh, Enrique Gutierrez, Colaccini, who'd had a year in the champ and were, were arguably you know, our star performers. They were exceptional. They got the confidence back. And we went into the, into the Premier League game full of optimism. We thought we had a really good team. Um, we didn't think, oh, we're just trying to stay up. We thought we could help Newcastle kick back on. And um, in the interim, there was a, a staff, like a squad bonus that wasn't agreed. It was, it was rumbling on all pre-season, but we were playing Man United away in the opening fixture at Old Trafford on the Monday night. And in the hotel on the Sunday before the game in Manchester, we were having team meetings and discussions and over this bonus structure. We ended up not signing it in a, in a protest towards Mike Ashley and Derek Lambias, which we were, I think, the first club in Premier League history never to sign this uh, squad bonus sheet. And we did it because we said, well, we're not having this shit. It's bullshit anymore. So we're just going to do, we're going to stay in the Premier League and do well for us, not for, for him. Um, it's going to be our, our group dynamic and as a playing group we voted unanimously so we, it was in essence a, a union kind of strike against the owner uh, it was the first I think it was the first um, real now nah, we're not having it anymore moment from um, us as a playing group to, to Mike and his and his cronies um, because it, they weren't doing things at the level we felt was um, fair to, to everybody so we took a stance um, the, we lost at Man United on the Monday night and I think the fact that we were having those meetings Sunday definitely in fact it affected the group we weren't focusing on the game the next game I think was at home against Aston Villa who were a good side at the time under Martin O'Neill had some good players Stylian Petrovs and they were they were constantly kind of top eight pushing into a top six side and we beat them 6-1 at home. I think John Carew missed the penalty the penalty at 1-0 to us or something. And we ended up beating them 6-1. So a little bit of a lucky moment. But we, we had a good result. And we were up and running then. And we had a really good team spirit going. Really good mix of, of foreign, young and, and old and experienced. And, and we, were, we, were, we were looking like we were going to build a good side. We get uh, the Christmas period that year. And, and, and as players, you know, I think we were sitting... Eighth or ninth in the Premier League, we'd had you know some some iffy days, but also lots of good. We were consistently decent side. We weren't going to get relegated. We were we were going to keep the club in the Premier League at the first attempt, which was is a good season by any newly promoted side season. Not only that, we were looking at potentially getting into the seventh place, which would have meant that season uh, Europa League football. So to get to win the championship and put the team back in the Europa League in the first season, I think for any newly promoted side. Um, would have been a great achievement and we were on course for that and then we just started hearing rumblings that Mike wants to get rid of the manager and wasn't happy with the manager because he'd not got us he'd never had the power to get us to sign this bonus and that was seen as a slap in the face for him and he didn't have so it was just like the political rumblings of a club um, and, then, and then what happened was um, we, we played West Ham away from home on Sky I think on a Sunday um, might have been the four o'clock game on a Sunday. And unbeknown to us, Chris, you, uh, I found this out later, obviously I haven't spoken to Chris, but unbeknown to us, Chris was due to be sacked that night because Mike thought West Ham would beat us because they were a good side and that was his opportunity to sack Chris and get his own man in. And luckily for us, but unluckily for, for Mike, we won 3-1, I think. Andy Carroll scored a couple of headers and we beat them 3-1 down there. And Chris got a stay of execution, but Chris had told us he took everything. He wore his best suit because he presumed he was speaking to the media after the game about his, his, the fact that he'd been sacked. 
Um, so, so, which is bizarre. And considering we were, we were first season, and I think we were ninth in the table, tenth, ninth or tenth in the table, but like three points off seventh in your first season back. We we won up, we went on a decent little run then, had a few little results, and I think we were eighth in the table. And at the back end of the transfer window, um, after saying all January, Andy Carroll was not for sale. We sold Andy Carroll to to Liverpool for I think a British record at the time. I think it was about, I think it was about thirty eight, forty million. Um, so we lost obviously our focal point. A couple of days after that, he sacked the manager. Um, again, yeah, I don't know. So the manager was sacked. So all of a sudden, sitting comfortably ninth in the table with a good side, fighting, you know, looking like we're going to have a good season. All of a sudden, it's just chaos now again because of the board and and not to do with the players completely and utterly at boardroom level. So you can imagine as a playing group, we're really really pissed off. Um, you know, we've gone through the turmoil the previous year of getting out all the players of the club. The players got it out, not the board. The players sat down at a meeting after we lost 6-1 at Leighton Orient and said, right, who wants a fucking beer? Who doesn't? Loads of hands. I don't want to be yet. Right, OK. Right, we need you to go away from the team then and we'll, we'll help you and we'll get help. Them. So because Chris and, and Cole were caretaker managers, a lot of the senior players were saying to Mike Ashley and Derek Lambias, look, you need to let this player go. He's going to be disruptive in the draft. He needs to go. Because they didn't know whether they were going to be manager or not, so they didn't want to upset the apple cart. So it was a weird time at the club. We we get through all them choppy waters and all that, and we've actually got a solid group of players and a solid staff. And the first opportunity he gets, he sells a player. Now you would argue he has to, you know, Newcastle got top money for Andy Carroll. There's a lot of money at the time, and you probably couldn't not sell him. But we didn't really replace him. That was the problem. You know, it's all good and well selling a player, but you've got to replace him. We never replaced them, so the money got pocketed um, and then we went into the back end of the season and by the way the players made it work but Chris Hutton got sacked and Pardew was given the job um, and we all presumed it, Pardew was from nowhere he'd not he'd been Southampton manager before we were like this is fucking like Dennis Wise this is job for the boys so I weren't happy at all and I'm, I wear my heart on my sleeve so I'm like hey I'm not having this I'm not having this when he comes in I've heard the stories about him thinking he behaves like a player, fucking driving Ferraris, all this nonsense. I'm like, last thing I need is another titter of a manager coming in who's fucking miles away from what we need. So I'm like, I'm not having him. Everything I've heard about him is not for me. He's a, he's a flash, cockney, not for me. Um, and he's Mike Ashley's man, so definitely not for me. So there was a few of the players that, in that mindset. So when he came in, I was openly hostile towards him. I think Al's, Al's done an interview recently. He's, I actually get over him sound now. He's done an interview recently and he said when he gets the job, I come into his office first first couple of days and say to him, hey, I'm just not having you at all. Just want you to know that. I just don't want you here. Don't want you as the manager. Now, you can imagine if you're a Pardew and you're a manager walking in and you've got a senior player who you know is going to be difficult to handle because of his reputation and everything you've probably heard about him and everyone said about him previously, knocking on your door, telling you he doesn't particularly like it and he doesn't really want, he's not, you're not his man for the job. Um, and knowing that he's very influential in that dressing room. So clearly, you know, he, he, he for me, I wasn't doing an audition for him. I was proving every week in, week out that I was capable of playing at the level I was playing at. This fellow had come from managing Southampton, I think, in the Championship and being sacked by them and had a number of... Uh, to, to, to manage in Newcastle United. And I was like, no, no, you need to prove to us that you're capable of managing us, not the other way around. So every, uh, so when I walked out of his office, I put my cards on the table. Hey, 
you're not for me. I don't like you. I think you flash. These are the stories I've heard about you from within the game, which I'm not really comfortable with. And any of that goes on here. Like you, me and you will not get on. I guarantee you that now. So to be fair to him, very, very good man manager, Al. Um, uh, and he sat down. He went, all right, look, I, I hear your concerns. Um, and we spoke it out. And, and we, we shook hands leaving his office. And I said, look, if you do things properly from this moment on, you'll, have, you'll never have a problem with me. Um, but but and he, if you think you can come up here and coast, then you just that just ain't gonna wash with me. Like we've worked too hard as a group of players to get this club back where it needs to be, and we ain't having anybody fucking derailing it. Um, and to be fair to him, he he was very very good when he come in. I was gutted we lost Chris and Cole because they they were good men and and we were loyal to them and they'd been with the club through them choppy waters and done an incredible job with incredible dignity in tough times. And as a playing group, we felt really really hurt by his his sacking and you know we were with Chris the night he got sacked and we weren't happy at all because we had a, an enormous loyalty to him because he, he'd done well for, for us and been a good man and a good a good person and you know I think loyalty in football is something that isn't um, around enough and, and isn't celebrated enough and, and maybe that's the state and that's why the game's in the predicament that it is in certain parts but part you come in and to be fair to him, he was a good coach and he was a good man um, uh, with us. And we, we didn't really lose momentum. Um, we were on course to finish, I think, sixth or seventh, seventh or eighth and get in the Europa Leagues if we won the last game of the season against West Brom. Um, and we were 3-0 up at half-time and uh, drew 3-3. Solomon Choi scored a second-half hat-trick, which I think is the only hat-trick he's ever scored in his life. And we ended up finishing ninth or tenth or something like that. So we went from Europa League or UEFA Cup to, to the mid-table finish. But again, you know, Pardew's first game, I think, at home was Liverpool. Um, we beat Liverpool at home 3-1. I think I scored the, op- the winner or the opener. And, um, like protested against Chris's sack and I'd done an interview after the game. Pardew's the manager, new manager. I've done an interview on Sky after the game, praising Chris Hutton, who's been sacked, saying he shouldn't have been sacked. So you can imagine at boardroom level what that did. We've just beaten Liverpool, I think, on a Tuesday night. That was live on Sky. And after the game, you've got one of your senior players saying, we shouldn't have sacked the old manager. He was a fucking good guy and we're really unsure about this fella. Um, and that didn't go down politically too too well. But, but, but thankfully... You know, I'll I'll work these balls off, and, and he, he got the respect of the playing group, and and that's why I think he had a great, you know, he had a good season with us that year, and I think the next year when we left, I think they got in the Europa League um, with Johan Kabay and a few other players, and and did 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 really really well, albeit after that it went went tits up again, and 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 the aftermath has been similar similar trajectory since. Mike's continued to. Um, Rock the boat when when it has it just needed a solid solid foundation. So, Pardew's era was um, the next year was you know the the four four was in there. There was you know the 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 madness of that game. I mean, you asked me about it before, and you know half time we're four nil down to an Arsenal Wenger, Cesc Fabregas rampant Arsenal team in, in front of fifty two thousand at St James's Park who. Clearly, not happy that we're four 0 down at, at the HT. Um, and I remember sitting in the dressing room at half time, and we we knew we, we, we thought we were going to lose the game, but it was like, lads, we we, we can't have a record score here. We we've just got to go out and try and win the second half. Just try and keep the score down. 
you know, for personal pride. And you've got to win your tackles because if you don't win your tackles, the Geordies are going to go bananas here. And, and, and it won't be, you know, in Newcastle, you walk around the city, there's no fan of any other club. They're all Newcastle fans. No Sunderland fans live in Newcastle. No Middlesbrough fans. No Darlington fans. Newcastle is a city that is absolutely consumed by football. You haven't got, like in Glasgow, you've got Celtic Rangers. In Liverpool, you've got Everton, Liverpool. In Manchester, you've got City United. London, you've got about eight clubs. In Newcastle, there's only Newcastle United. So if you're winning, great. It's the best city you'll ever be in. But if you're 4-0 down to Arsenal at half-time, you think the next week's going to be a nice, you won't be able to go for shopping. There will be lots of things that you will not want to do, and that includes going over your doorstep um, if you've been B5, 6, 7 nil at home um, against anybody. So, in that dressing room at half time, that's all we spoke about. you came in, that's all we spoke about salvaging pride, keeping the score down, getting stuck in, getting the physicality up, winning challenges, making sure they don't take the piss out of us. Um, and we went out second half. And I think the, t- the turning point actually came from uh, a 50-50 challenge between uh, myself and, uh, and Abu Diaby. Um, Abu, would, I think, had a period of time out with injuries over his career and was a little bit precious and, and thought that nobody could make a challenge on him because the world owed him something because he had all these injuries, uh, which was his prerogative, but, but that was his mindset. And, and my mindset was well, I'm fucking wanting to walk around this city with my reputation as, as being a, somebody who's fought for this football club intact. So, unfortunately for you, I've got to play the game be, like, like a man possessed because if I don't, I'm going to have 52,000 Geordies baying from my blood. So I went in for the tackle, which was, you know, you watch it back, it was robust, it was fair. Ref didn't deem it a foul, I won the ball. I, I got a bit of man, but they were, the, they were the days when you could actually make a tackle, not now. Um, when we're playing or is it netball now, it's non-contact, tag football. Um, so they were the days when, when you could actually still make a challenge. And if you won the ball, that was kind of all that was important. So I got, a, I got 100% ball and a bit of man. Um, the Arby, because they were falling up, thought this was a training exercise for him and he was just going to have a game of possession and I wasn't going to be able to touch him. He, he got upset at that. He then grabbed me, I think, round the back of the neck and push me on the floor. Now, I'd had many times where people had grabbed hold of me and I responded and I'd been sent off. So I thought, well, I'm not playing the game. I'm, I'm, I'm going to you know, make it a bit easier for us as a team if they're down to 10 for the, for the second half. They're going to win the game because they're 4-0 up. But, you know, 10 might give us a chance at, at, at keeping it at four. Um, so, the RB reacts. I think Rob Dowd, someone that might have been Rob Dowd. Who was the, who was the referee? Phil Dowd, I think Phil Dowd was the ref. I think Phil sends him off for raising his hands. And the, literally the momentum of the tie was still not in. When I watch, I've watched the game back a couple of times um, just to see what happened. And actually Arsenal are still outplaying us with the 10. Like, it's not like the 10 men makes, makes us better. And then what happened was we scored. I think we got a penalty. Did we get a pen? I think we got a pen. I, I can't remember what else. I, I think we got a penalty to make it 4-1. And I just remember us scoring and them, them kind of trying to sit back and, with 10 men and protect what they had. And that, that swung the momentum of the tie. I think we got another goal relatively quickly and then we got a, a very, very fortunate penalty in my eyes. And I'm not really sure it was a pen, but I think the ref got um, caught up with the 52,000 mental Geordies going, going berserk, gives the pen. Luckily, I, I've gone down the middle and he's left his feet there, but it's hit his feet and gone in. 
Um, it's rare you get two penalties in one game. So um, I think I couldn't really go the way I normally wanted to go, that I prepared to go because I'd already scored that way. Um, so at the last minute, changed my mind. Luckily for me, it, it managed to go in. And then they've just gone. You know, some of the best, Van Persie's, Fab, they've gone. You can just see visibly they're, they're shell shock. Um, and they were on a great run at the time. They were on a really good run of form. Obviously being 4 up at half-time. They can't believe what's happening. It's now 4-3. Um, and then you get the, the most magical moment um, of the whole game, which is, you know, Checky, God rest him, not with us no more, great guy. And um, I whip in a free kick and it was actually shy, shy ball. I've, I've, I've hit it too short and I've, I'm kicking myself thinking, God, it was a great moment to get a good ball in. I've let them off the hook, gets headed out. And Czech, who'd um, never struck a ball that well with his right foot, um, never mind his left foot, unleashes a, a howitzer of a volley that was just incredible, unstoppable, and the whole place um, erupted. You know, he took off, Stevie Harper's piling on, all the lads are in, the stadium's going mental. And that made it 4-4. But I remember thinking, there's still five minutes to go here, we can win. So I remember getting after the ball and getting back in. And honestly, Leon Best had a really, really good chance. I think, I don't know who the keeper was. It might have been uh, Wojciech Szczesny, the, the Roma keeper now. I think Szczesny made a save from Leon Best in stoppage time that would have won us the game. So we were, we were lit. And, and it, it gets missed now because you're just 4-4 and Czech's goal, which was an amazing goal, an amazing moment. But actually after that, when the game kicked off, we had another opportunity. The keeper made an unbelievable save. Otherwise, we'd have won that game 5-4. I still came bestie on it now. I say you should have fucking scored that. <laughs> in terms of the Sunderland games, you you like to wind Sunderland fans up with a five-one. What was that like? Because that was a, an era where Newcastle were definitely the better side. Well, we, 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 we they'd stayed in the Premier League when we'd been relegated, so Sunderland actually was a lot more balanced than, than Newcastle at that at that time. Um, you know, and they they had some. They had some good young players, obviously Liverpool captain Jordan Henderson, you know, proving himself to be top level as a, was a young player in the side. And they had a good solid, you know, British core to them. Um, you know, I, I think they'd gone off the back of the Roy Keane where they've got promoted from champ to, to, to Prem and, and they were starting to put some solid foundations back down and had, had a really, honestly, they had a, a really good side. I think at the time we played them, they were above us in the table and we were the, we were the new side back in the division. And um, all the build-up to that we, we was quite intense, but they, they certainly had no fear factor attached to us. Uh, you know, if, if anything, I think they thought they were better than us at the time. Um, and there was an argument, you know, that they probably were because they'd had more consistent years in the Premier League. So we roll into that game and you kind of feel it was a changing of the guard. And I remember reading all the, the Chronicle and all the local papers in the build-up to it. And I'm like, these are a decent side. You know, we've got our work cut out and uh, the game kicks off. And the thing they couldn't handle was the intensity of the stadium. I think a few of their big players, you know, they had some really good players, Steve Malbronx and... That, was, was Dan Bent there? I think Bent was yep. there for a, 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 a sizable transfer fee, and you know they 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 were they were they were no um, no pushovers, and they, they turned up thinking they were going to win the game, and it was going to be a changing of the garden. 
you know, they were going to put us in our place first season back in, in in the division, and you know that didn't 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 transpire. Most of the time, I I think I was very I've got a great record from in derbies as a player. I had a great record in the Manchester derby, a great record in the West London derby, and the games I played in and Burnley, Blackburn, I, I didn't I think beat them every time I played them. Um, Marseille, PSG. The classical um, was the only one I really never had um, any any traction in, but everywhere else, well, Rangers as well, couldn't have played in one, we got B5-1. Um, but everywhere else, I'd always kind of, I'd been in good sides and the derby games were always quite close. So we, we, we presumed to be the same there. And, you know, over my, my career with Sunderland, um, you know, their fans have certainly given me a lot of, a lot of uh, grief. But I, I think that's, you know, it probably boils over from time to time with a certain, you know, faction of them. But, you know, I think the reality of it is, I think, you know, my dad always said, if people are paying attention for two years, they're fearful about, you know, what, you, what you're capable of doing. You know, people who are shit, who don't impact games, fans don't really target them or don't really sing abuse at them. It tends to be players who, for whatever reason, you know, whether it may be making a tackle or, or, or scoring a goal, whatever it is, they're the players that tend to get targeted because they're the players who can swing sometimes the momentum of, of a game. You know, you see Diego Costa, I was at, luckily, I, I, I got the last game I went to live was at Letico Real Madrid, but I don't know whether it was luckily or unluckily based on the coronavirus um, thing, but but I went to the game and I was in the, fan, in, in the stadium as a fan, just watching, two, you know, Simeone and Klopp and the tactical battle. And Diego Costa didn't really do much as in, as a player on the night, but he, he held the crowd and he, he affected the momentum of the crowd. And I think, you know, Liverpool missed a no, number of opportunities that night, but there was something about Costa's energy, the energy he put into the stadium and the energy he caused in the opposition. There was times where Liverpool were on top and the fans were vocal and Costa would do something. And then the Liverpool fans had switched to having a go at him and stop supporting the team. And it, and it helped Atletico players get a bit of momentum back. And, you know, I was watching the psychological effect of you know somebody who is a pantomime villain, an arch villain in Diego Costa, and how he didn't have his best footballing game, but how he was still able to influence the game um, to help his side ultimately progress and, and knock the European or defending European champions out of the competition. So we talked the, a lot there, Julia, about Newcastle. Um, why did it end the way it did at Newcastle, and how did you end up going to QPR? Well, well, well. As I said, it, the, the kind of nonsense was rumbling on in the background at board level. Um, Keegan had obviously gone, and that 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 kind of kick-started a chain of events. Obviously, we were relegated, come back up. Chris Hutton went, and then Pardew came in, and and everything was fine. Al was fine. We had a good working relationship. Finished the season, as I say, we were winning three nil, which I think were the men finishing seventh for eighth that season, and, and ended up squandering that lead and, and drawing 3-3 and I believe it was due to the fact that we never had a bonus structure in place what I said to you before the Man U game uh-huh. lads just it didn't matter whether we finished 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th it didn't matter because there was nothing at stake for anybody most of them lads just wanted to be away in the summer and, and, and away for you know on the holidays the season was over we couldn't finish top 6 and 7th was an outside chance uh, and what had happened was I'd agreed Andy Carroll had been sold in the January. They'd offered, they'd sat down and wanted to offer a number of us, like the senior players. They said we got, we want to, you know, want to use the Andy Carroll money to 
to solidify the group we've got and then add to it. Um, so I started negotiations with them about a new deal. Um, and I was I would happily stay at Newcastle for you know the, the rest of my career. I love living in the city. I love the fans I played for. I felt really, really, really uh, comfortable where I was. And I was hoping to help the club get back to the, to, to, to the top levels of, of the game. You know, what I initially joined the club for from, from Manchester City. So in, in, in the interim, there'd been... My missus had a miscarriage. It was the first time she was pregnant and we were away in Spain, I think in about the February or March and in an international break. And I was negotiating a contract at the time and my missus had had, had a miscarriage, first child, all over the place. And the club were trying to negotiate the contract in the same period. So I was like, look, this is just too much for me. I need a time out. Like I can't, I can't, I can't focus on this at the minute. I've got enough on my plate with playing and I've got, you know, obviously the issue at home that I need to be there and present for, and I can't really be having a negotiation going on. So, so talks were shelved to 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 uh, start back up at a later date, and the talks were really productive initially. Andy was sold. Uh, we get it. The season rumbles on, um, and then it got to before the start of the 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 the, the kind of end. The start of the end for me was I sat down to negotiate a contract with um, Derek Lambias. Now, weirdly, it was, it'd gone from intermediaries because they were all disagreeing over picking up where they left off and Mike and Derek were trying to be a little bit cute because that's what my MO is. Um, so there was a discrepancy about where the negotiation was to start back up. Um, it ended up being a falling out, so the club wouldn't speak to the people who were, were helping me with, with, with my side of the deal. So it ultimately ended up with me and Derek negotiating a contract in his office. And the more and more we got into it, the more and more I, I, I just knew I shouldn't have been in there because he started talking to me about performance, KPIs, performance indicators, you know, this, this and this. And I was like, this is a guy who's run a casino. I was like, how, how are you talking about football? You know, absolutely nothing about football. Um, you know, we, we're talking about finances, figures, gambling odds. Yeah, I've probably listened to you, but actually you're talking about the state of football, the state of, of me as a player, what you think I've got left in, in my capabilities, and you're not in a place to, to make that call. So that meeting ended with me standing up, and his room and Alan Pardew's, the manager's office, were interconnected by it. There was a door it, you know, to interconnect them. And Pardew had put me in the room at Derek. I'm like, look, just go in there, and you'll get your contact sorted. You'll get it sorted out in that room. I went in with Derek Lambias and walked out after 15 minutes and just said, with the door still open, and Derek, sitting at his desk, don't ever put me in a room with a fucking imbecile like that ever again. And obviously he's the managing director at, the, at that point in time. So I knew at that point that this is not going to go uh, particularly well. Now, I knew Derek was only Mike Ashley's lackey anyway, so he's an absolute puppet for Mike. And, and nothing would happen with Mike say without Mike say so. So I'm presuming at this point in time, there's going to be an intervention. Me and Mike will sit down, as we had done in the past, and resolve kind of any issues season rumbles on kind of negotiations going to start not going to start anyway one of the caveats that Derek Lambias wanted to put in my contract was I, I wanted I was 28 29 I had a year left or 18 months left and I'm like look we're about to have a family I've just lost a child we're about to have a family and I need to put a solid base in place I can't be going a year a year 18 I can't do that my missus wants to have kids I wanted to have kids. I need to give them. 
a space where I know I'm going to be for two, three seasons that I can build, I can start and have a family because it's, it's important that there's, there's structure before I have kids. So um, Derek in his wisdom had said, well, I'll tell you what, if we finish eighth and above, I'll give you the extra year that you're looking for because I was taking less money. I said to you, I signed for Newcastle on, you know, the best part of 70, 80 grand a week, depending on, you know, playing and the little bonus caveats. And I was saying, look, I'll take half of it. I was going to sign for 40. Now, that's a lot of money, but it's hard. I was that keen to stay and be part of what they were building. And because I love the club, that I said, look, look, market value, I'll take that, but I want an extra year. I'll take a lot less, but I want an extra year because I need this security for my family. Um, and anyway, he, because he's a casino boss, he wanted to, he said, I'll have a bet with you. If we finish eighth and above, I'll give you the extra year. But if we don't finish above eighth, you, you sign the contract I'm offering to you. So I said, well, Derek, that, if, if, if that was down to me and it was in my power, like I, I can control that. So yeah, no problem. I'll take, I'll back myself, no problem. But you're asking me to back the performance of every other player I'm going to play with. And if they... If they get it wrong, am I then going to blame them to say, fucking hell, you've cost me another year? And as it transpired, we were 3-0 up at West Brom last day of the season. At half-time, I'd have got the extra year. In the second half, we drew 3-3. I wouldn't have got the, I would, I would have got the, the, his, the better contract for him. So I'd have been going in that dressing room after the game, going to fucking Jose Enrique, who had a tough second half. You fucking cost me a year's money, which, as I said to you, was Norfolk for... You know, you're talking millions of pounds. So it was wrong for him to put the players and me in that situation. That should have been something that was negotiated separately because he didn't have a fucking clue what he was doing. It didn't It didn't play out that way. So at the end of that year, I've still got one year left to run on my contract. So I'm like, look, fine. And that contract's still, you know, 70, 80. So I'm, I'm like, look, cool, no problem. I, I'm playing really, really well. I think I'm going to get called back up for England. I think I'm, I was playing right midfield at the time. Um, created a lot of goals for Andy. Andy had been bought in um, the, the, the January. A lot of people were saying he hadn't got up and running and Liverpool might come for me because they'd realised I was you know, a source of inspiration for his goals. So there was a lot of clubs picking back up like fucking hell I thought I, I was playing better than when I got in the England side so I thought I'm going to get another call up here because Capello was the manager at the time I thought he can't ignore me I'm playing as good as anyone in the country and I put Lampard and Gerrard I think I've done an interview I said no no midfielder in this country is playing better than me some were playing as good but none was playing better in that period and I thought no matter what's gone before if you're truly serious about winning games, you've got to pick the best man for the job. And I was in form. I was, I've been playing well consistently for about a 12-month period. And I was like, look, I'm, I, I think I should be getting those, those caps that I, I, I felt, um, you know, Scott Parker, a few other players were getting. I was like, nah, I think I'm ahead of them. They're just in the England squad because they they've been in the squad for a while. But actually, when it comes down to form, I think I'm, I think I'm playing much better than them. Um, so, so in my mind, I'm, I'm just considering pushing forward. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to be 29, 30, and I'm going to be a, a Bosman. I'm going to be a free transfer at the end of this next season. Um, but obviously, Mike, being Mike, didn't want that. So he's like, right, if he won't sign a new contract, I want him out. And he wants to get a, a fee for me. So I'm like, hey, I don't want to leave Newcastle. I, and he's like, well, it doesn't matter, you're going. And I'm like, well, it's not as straightforward as that. <laughs> so 
it, that summer he was he was a bit off. Kevin Nolan got there, who's a key friend of mine. He got sold that summer to West Ham, which was a bizarre decision. But you know, it was all about it. It all came down to Mike and Derek Lambayas breaking up the player power that we'd got from the the shambles of the Championship relegation and the the, the spirit that was built getting back to the Premier League. We didn't sign the bonus. He's seen that as a, a slap in the face, and that's why he, he, one of the re- reasons he got rid of Chris Shooting. He never had enough control over the players, he said. And then what happened is he wanted to get rid of players that he thought were, 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 were stopping him have an absolute carte blanche to do whatever he wanted to to the playing group. Basically, like he does in Sports Direct, where he fucking does what he wants and, and you have to just get in line. Otherwise, um, you, you lose your job but obviously our union's very good and, and the PFA have, have created co- contracts as well as standing on the shoulders of many other players over the years uh, and the players now are in a very very good position contractually when they, when they get in disagreements with clubs thanks to them so I knew I knew we had the, the union on the side and, and obviously I weren't going to be pushed around by Mike and you know, I'm I'm a bit too old and, and wise and long in the tooth to, to have anybody uh, attempt to bully me. So I, I just dug my feet in. I thought, Sam, I'll play for Pardew for another year. At the end of the year, in, or January, there'll be a revisitation of what's available, what options I have, what options they have, and, and we'll crack on from there. But I'm never going to know. I've never played for a club where I've not put 100% in when I've, when I've crossed the white line ever in, in my career. So I go into that season and we... we had a few pre-season games um, and then we played Leeds in one of the last pre-season friendlies away from home. Kevin Nolan had been, been sold. Um, so he was our captain the year before. So I'm like, well, you know, there was a, me, Kev, Alan Smith, Steve Harper, a couple of others, but but me, Steve Harper, Alan Smith, Kev were pretty much the senior council in in, in, in anything so I presumed stupidly maybe that I would be the captain because I'm like well, I'm the lead, I'm the most senior leader left after he's got rid of everybody else so naturally you know I'll be chosen to, to to lead the group because you know in terms of credibility at that point I was the natural leader um, and Pardew called me in and said look we've made a decision and it's gonna we're gonna make Colacini the captain so Colacini, who's a great guy, Colo, he couldn't speak a word of English. So he really, really struggled with the language and his wife struggled with the language, which ultimately meant she left England early and it made him go back to Argentina early. But he'd always had a problem with the language. So I really respected Colo, thought he was a great player. And I didn't agree with him becoming captain because I believed I was the captain. But I thought, well, Colo's a good guy and I've got to support him. So I said to Pardew, look, I don't agree with the decision, but the decision's made. It's not going to make any difference to me whether I've got a piece of, you know, I'm still in my mind, I'm still the leader and a leader doesn't have to wear the armband. The leader now has to support the guy who's been given the leadership. So for me, I squared it with Pardew. Look, I thought it was a bit disrespectful, but the fact that I was in a contract dispute, the fact that I had a year left, I could understand uh, the club's thinking. So I said, look, I'll support Colo any way I can, obviously, with the English speaking and help him. So I, I became a, 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 a great help to him in the early stages of his captaincy. 
and I, that was fine because Pardew had pulled me before and he told me what was going to happen. I never read about it in the papers. I never, I, I thought, fair enough. I don't agree with the decision, but they've done it. He, Pardew as a manager has done it in a respectful way, no problem. And we were fine. We played Leeds and Colaccini now is not in, he's not in, he's not, he's injured. So he's not playing in the Leeds friendly. <clears throat> but he was so bored, he wasn't starting. So I naturally thought, well, even if it's only for this game, I'm surely going to be the captain. And in the dressing room before the game, I realised that I'm not. And Shola, I mean, always the captain. And Shola's a great mate of mine. And a great, been, we were together in England under 21s. And obviously all the way through, we're still good friends now. But he wasn't, he wasn't a, a, a captain. You know, he, he's not, he's not, or in my eyes, he wasn't, I'm like, well, I'm being passed over here. And I, I, so I seen it as a, a huge disrespect to me from part. I was like, what, what's going on here? You, I should have been captain for that game. And then it's back to Colo when, because I was vice captain. They, they'd said, Colo's going to be captain, you're vice captain. But then the, the captaincy just skipped me out. Now, in essence, it's not really that much of an important thing. And in, in any normal place, it wouldn't be. But because of what had gone before, I kind of preempted what was coming. So it was the first time um, me and Alan Pardew had had a crossword since I'd told him I didn't like him when he first came in. We'd been great and, and had a good working relationship to that point. And then in the dressing room before the game, he went to shake me hand to wish me good luck for the game. And as he put his hand out, I've, I've said to him, take your hand away. He's like, what, what do you mean, take your hand away? I said, you can't come in here and shake my hand when I know you're privy to conversations that are ultimately about trying to get me out of this football club and you, you're coming in smiling, trying to be a pal of mine. Let's not play that game. I said, so take your hand, and fuck off. So at that point, Al said to me afterwards, we spoke afterwards, at that point, Al's like, I've got to get, he's got to go because he's now going to become disruptive. So what happened then was, and this is where social media and Twitter and it just started, that was just the start of that. So the club did what, what most football clubs tend to do. They, they prefer for a, a confrontation using everything that, that, that they know works for them. So that would be leaking stories to the local media because they're reliant upon um, their access to the, to, to the local club to, to, to sell their papers. And you know, that was the Chronicle. And the local journalists were briefed off the record about the tone that should be taken towards me. But at that point, I'd just started dabbling about. Twitter had only just come about, which was just a way to circumvent any journalist. So the club were releasing off-the-record stories about me and why I hadn't signed a new deal and how I was becoming a disruptive influence. And, and they'd have to seed that story. It'd get printed the next day. And then that would be in the ether. But with Twitter and social media, I was able to just take the story out as the minute it was published. And then add much more context to it before the next day they could get another story leaked into the paper. So they were basically, they'd come to a, a gunfight with a spud gun. <laughs> and I, I realised that and I was like, you, I was just laughing going, you're trying to beat, you, you're trying to release lies about me to, to discredit me with the fans when I can just speak to the fans with one tweet instantly. And it was the first, you know, it was the first time that had played out. So again, time and all things falling at the time. 
And it ultimately ended in, I think West Ham bid for me in in the summer. I think the, the, the price they were quoted with it, player who's 29 with a year left, less than a year left on his contract, I think they were quoted three and a half, four million quid. By the time I got to the Leeds game, which was four, less than four weeks later, I was a free transfer. So you can imagine the amount of conversations that and disagreements with Lambias and, and, and Ashley. And as I say, I'm somebody who will not, I'll go and find you and speak to you directly if I've got an issue with you, because that's how I believe conflicts get resolved, not in email chains, people sitting down, looking in the whites of each other's eyes and getting, 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 getting stuff done. Um, and they clearly didn't have the appetite to, to run into me in the training ground or in the stadium. So they decided um, in whichever way they could, they just wanted me out of the football club, which at that point, um, I didn't want to go, but I, I knew I couldn't stay with a, a, a board um, and an owner that you know was hell bent on getting you out of the club. So at that point, uh, QPR came in. They'd just been taken over by Tony Fernandez, and uh, my missus was pregnant with my first uh, child, Cassius, and I wanted security, and they offered me more money than I was on at Newcastle, and the four-year deal. And at that point, I made a financial decision to sign for QPR. Uh, it's the only financial decision I've. I've made. Um, it's the only move I ever made based on finance. And you know, if I'm honest, you know, I did. I did regret doing. I shouldn't have left Newcastle. So we'll dive down to the ocean, and we'll make our home in a deep sea cave, and our shells will all be open. They'll be filled with song. They'll be filled with song. We'll dive down to the ocean, and we'll make our home in.